Good morning. Our scripture is taken from the uh, book of Daniel, chapter 6, and the first 12 verses, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Darius the Mede decided to divide the kingdom into 120 provinces, and he appointed a high officer to rule over each province. The king also chose Daniel and two others as administrators to supervise the high officers and protect the king's interests. Daniel soon proved himself more capable than all the other administrators and high officers. Because of Daniel's great ability, the king made plans to place him over the entire empire. Then the other administrators and high officers began searching for some fault in the way Daniel was handling government affairs, but they couldn't find anything to criticize or condemn. He was faithful, always responsible, and completely trustworthy. So they concluded, our only chance of finding grounds for accusing Daniel will be in connection with the rules of his religion. So the administrators and high officers went to the king and said, Long live King Darius. We are all in agreement. We administrators, officials, high officers, advisors, and governors, that the king should make a, make a law that will be strictly enforced. Give orders that for the next 30 days, any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except to you, your majesty, will be thrown into the den of lions. And now, your majesty, issue and sign this law so it cannot be changed an official law of the Medes and Persians that cannot be revoked. So King Darius signed the law. But when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home and knelt down as usual in his upstairs room with its windows open toward Jerusalem. He prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks to his God. Then the officials went together to Daniel's house and found him praying and asking for God's help. So they went straight to the king and reminded him about his law. Did you not sign a law that for the next 30 days, any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except to you, your majesty, will be thrown into the den of lions? Yes, the king replied, that decision stands. It is an official law of the Medes and Persians that cannot be revoked. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Rudy. Good morning, everyone. It's a beautiful day, and uh, God has given us the, the gift of a, a warm day here in Edmonton. Some of our ladies uh, are on retreat. Some of us are batching this weekend. Uh, some of our ladies are in retreat, about 43 of them, I think, uh, in Canmore, Alberta. And we, uh, we know they're coming back today, so all will be well. It's been a difficult week. It's been a difficult week uh, for the people of Manchester, uh, for the Christians in Egypt. And uh, we want to just keep praying um, it never ceases to amaze me of the, the wickedness and the pain uh, that's in our world and the unnecessary cruelty. Uh, so pray for, pray for the people of Manchester. Pray for Christians in Egypt who are going through very difficult times. 
Thank you for praying for uh, Southwest uh, Community Church. Uh, we are nine weeks into our new ministry and the church plant over there. It's going very well. In fact, uh, our website is now live. And uh, Pastor Norb, there's a slide at the end of the announcements that will kind of give you the, the address. If I give it to you now, you might not listen to me. You'll just be, be, be going through the website. So I don't think you can Google it either. It's not reached that stage yet, but you can go to the address and kind of see what's happening over at Southwest Community Church. Well, we're coming uh, just very close to the end of our series uh, that we have labeled Against uh, All Odds. And we've moved along in the great passage this morning, uh, Daniel 6, and we'll just take the first half of the chapter and then we'll finish it up next Sunday. There's so much here. Uh, but we, we're coming to this chapter that just to what everybody uh, has heard about, Daniel and the lion's den. Uh, we won't quite get that far this week, but I think it's the most familiar chapter in all of Daniel and one of the most familiar chapters in the Bible. There's a richness to this story, uh, even before we get to the story of the lion's den. So just allow me this morning to focus on the pre-den experience. In an interview uh, for Harvard Business Review, the poet Maya Angelou was asked about the most important lessons that she learned from her mother. And Miss Angelou said, I would say she encouraged me to develop courage. And she taught me by being courageous herself. And after years of uh, being away from home, I think becoming, I have become more courageous and I realize that it isn't born, one isn't born with courage, but one develops it. And here's how she puts it. And you develop it by doing small, courageous things in the same way that one wouldn't set up to pick up a hundred pound bag of rice. I mean, if that was one's aim, the person would be advised to pick up a five pound bag of rice and then a 10 pound bag of rice and then a 20 pound bag of rice and you get the idea until one builds up enough muscle to actually pick up a hundred pounds of rice and she said that's the way it is with courage you develop courage by doing courageous things small things one after another but things that cost you something, something physically, something mentally, something emotionally, maybe even spiritually. We have in front of us this morning a man who epitomizes the words of Maya Angelou. He started developing an excellent life, a courageous life, even when he was a teenager or maybe even younger. And when we meet him in the presence of a king who is ruling from Babylon, he is now a man, as Pastor Norb said last week, he's now a man into his 70s, maybe into his 80s. But he started by lifting five pounds of excellence and then 10 pounds of excellence, of courage, and then 30 pounds, and then 100 pounds. And he turned out to be quite a weightlifter. He just kept getting more courageous and more excellent as the years went by. 
And we would love to grab a sheet of paper and just, uh, and just come up to him and talk to him and interview him and say, how did you do that? How did you go about taking control of your life? How did you have a normal life, but yet a very extraordinary life? And what are the secrets to an excellent life? And what did you actually do to develop character in your life? How did you develop such a closeness uh, of heart with God? How did you get that peace in your life, that character peace? How did you master the areas of your life which we all struggle with? Contentment and power and self-control and all of these things. How do you get yourself ready for the road that's ahead of you? You don't know the road that you're called to walk. Are we always preparing ourselves for the next step? And of course the answer is yes. Most of you are familiar with a man called Stephen Covey. He's written some very good books along the way. Uh, his son is now also writing some good books. Listen to what he says. In school, many of us procrastinate and then successfully cram for tests. Is that true of anybody among us or all of us? But he asks, does cramming work on a farm? Can you go two weeks without milking the cow and then just get out there and milk like crazy? Can you forget to plant in the spring or goof off all summer and then the, hit the fields real hard in the fall to bring in the harvest? And he writes, the only thing that endures over time is the law of the farm. I must prepare the ground, put in the seed, cultivate it, weed it, water it, and gradually nurture growth and development to full maturity. So also in a marriage or helping a teenager through a difficult identity crisis. There's no quick fix where you can just move in and make everything right with a positive mental attitude and a bunch of success formulas. The law of the harvest governs natural laws, principles, operate regardless. So he writes, get these principles at the center of your life, at the center of your relationships, at the center of your entire organization. And these are his words of challenge. People instinctively trust those whose personality is founded upon correct principles. When trust is high, we communicate easily, effortlessly, instantaneously. We can make mistakes and others will still capture our meaning. But when trust is low, communication is exhausting, time-consuming, ineffective, and difficult. See, God built into Daniel's heart a compass which guided him all through life. Uh, there are different words which you could use to express what the compass looks like. Just allow me to choose the word excellent because I think it's so all-embracing. The word excellent. It's interesting that when the new government was, was set up to rule the land under Darius, that he established a new organizational structure. Sometimes when governments change, the whole structure begins to change. And he appointed 120 officers to rule throughout the kingdom. They were probably like our MPs, our MLAs, uh, terms that we're familiar with. And through these 120 overseers, Darius delegated the authority of responsibility. He handed it out through these 120 uh, leaders. Now, when you have that many people operating in this larger 
former Babylonian empire, you have to have enormous trust that you're not going to be ripped off by the people that you have in power. 120 people can do you enormous damage if they're not the right people. So what did Darius do? He also appointed three administrators over the 120 officers. And the officers were made accountable to the three administrators. Why? Catch this last part of verse 2. So that the king might not suffer loss. So the king would not suffer loss. Now the king was wise enough to know that some of these officers, hundreds of miles away from the, from the king, could easily fill their pockets with taxation money, could use government credit cards inappropriately, could fudge on their expense reports. So he called to his side three men whom he trusted very much, and one of them was Daniel. Now, as said, Daniel is probably about 80 at this time. And Darius picked him up and put him in position as one of his top administrators. To me, being a new king on the scene, he must have done his homework to discover the kind of man that Daniel was. Now, who is Darius? King of the Medes, king of the Persians, king of the Medes and Persians. And so with the overthrow of the Babylonians, Daniel 5, Pastor Norb talked about this last week, after the, the Babylonians were defeated, there came a new kingdom rule under the Medes and the Persians. And it appears like Darius is on the throne prior to Cyrus. We know more about Cyrus than we do about Darius from, from the record books. But it appears that Darius is the first one on the throne. And Daniel probably, you know, being 80 years of age, could have retired at his age. But now he's being asked to be one of the three top administrators across the whole empire. Now that ought to encourage some of us, some of you, some of us that are here this morning who are pressing uh, along in age, who are pressing into 80s, pressing into 90s. You know, we have people in this church who are seniors, but they don't sit around and just collect dust. They're involved. They pray. They encourage. They serve. It's amazing. They carry heavy responsibilities. And Daniel is still right on mission in his 80s. Look at this, verse 3. Daniel soon proved himself more capable than all of the other administrators and high officers. Because of Daniel's great ability, the king made plan to place him over the entire empire. Wow. Not just one of the three anymore, but he made plans to put him over the entire empire. The prime minister. The new prime minister of the Medes and the Persians. Well, the first quality in Daniel's life that stands out is the fact that he had a great attitude. And that's a great place to start. Daniel was a gifted man, but it all came packaged in a great attitude, in an extraordinary presentation of himself. He had an excellent spirit. John Gardner writes in his book, actually called Excellence, the society which scorns excellence in plumbing because plumbing is a humble activity and tolerates shoddiness in philosophy 
because it's an exalted activity, will have neither good plumbing nor good philosophy. Neither its pipes nor its theories will hold water. Love it. Love it. That's a great quote. John Maxwell puts it bluntly. He said, people are funny. They want a place uh, in the front of the room, front of the bus, the back of the church, and the middle of the road. Tell a man there are 300 billion stars, and he will believe you. Tell that same man that a bench has just been painted, and he has to touch it to be sure. People are frustrating at times. They show up at the wrong place at the wrong time for the wrong reason. They're not always predictable because they have minds of their own. That's why it's essential, he writes, to build proper relationships with others in our crowded world. Because in large part, it's, it's a, a lot about attitude. Have you ever worked in an environment where the attitude was just excellent? Have you ever worked in an environment where the attitude was sour and suspecting and uncomfortable? What a difference. What a difference. Are you the pace setter in your place for an excellent impacting attitude? If you are, you might be able to turn that whole place around. Ask God to give you an acute awareness of your attitude. One of the great gifts of God is the gift of self-awareness. We can go through life and we're just blind to certain things about life, about our life. Everybody else sees it, but we don't see it. It's a blind spot. Do we have a good handle on our own attitudes in life? Daniel excelled because of the exceptional qualities that were in his life, but particularly his excellent spirit. And because of his excellent spirit, Darius was promoted to a, to, a, uh, to a place where he would be in charge of the whole kingdom, the prime minister. Darius observed that if he had uh, a man of Daniel's caliber in his ranks, that the best thing he could do would be to allow Daniel to take leadership of the whole nation. He was prepared to do that. Maybe as you look at your ministry, your organization, your, your place where you serve, that you seek somebody that really, God has just put them there. Who do you have in your ranks right now? You could say, wow, look, look who is here. You know, we, we could have a discussion about chemistry versus uh, capability or competence. In most cases, competency can be learned. So employers, for example, see the potential of a person, but they're really, first of all, looking at chemistry or relationships, and it all boils down to attitude or an excellent spirit. Do people notice the presence of a man or woman or young person who has an excellent spirit? Oh, I'll tell you, they do. That's who employers look for these days. Look at the people who are the frontline drafts in any organization. What you notice about them is their attitude. I'm so glad to be able to say that our staff at TCC and Southwest is, uh, have great attitudes, great hearts, great hearts, and 
More staff joining us soon, and I know they have great hearts. It's their attitudes, it's their excellent spirits that rise to the top. What kind of attitude will you have tomorrow as you head off to work? Do you ask, will anybody really notice if my attitude is excellent? Guaranteed. Your colleagues will certainly notice. But, but it seems there can be a problem even when you have a great attitude. It shouldn't be, but it seems like it is. Uh, you wouldn't think there would ever be a problem with a good attitude. Well, even that can happen. It seems like in Daniel's context that his colleagues were threatened by his positive attitude and outlook in life. It says, Then the other administrators and high officers began searching for some fault in the way Daniel was handling government affairs. But they couldn't find anything to criticize or condemn. He was faithful, always responsible, and completely trustworthy. Isn't that a great sentence? So they concluded, our only chance of finding grounds for accusing Daniel will be in connection with the rules of his religion. Wow, if your excellent attitude causes a problem in your work environment or wherever it is, I guess you just have to say that's unfortunate and sad. It's sad that your good attitude can become negative in a work environment. But just keep having an excellent attitude. But this thing called jealousy is always lurking in every organization. Daniel's great performance, his mind, his heart, his integrity, caused some jealousy and a sinister plot developed to push Daniel out of leadership. It happens. But regardless... Develop an excellent spirit. I can't say it enough. The attractiveness of an excellent spirit. You pick up people like that along the way. They're eagles. You pick them up as fast as you can. You spot them a mile away. Whether it's a family member or a colleague or a friend, find someone with an excellent spirit and you have scored big time. The second distinguishing mark on Daniel's life was his trustworthiness in regards to his work. I mean, he had great capacity to serve and to work and to undertake a project. He was more capable than all the others. He had a great attitude, but added to that was, he, was the fact that he was most capable. You know, how do you throw a guy like that under the bus? He's got it all going. He's just too good. He's just too good. Isn't that sad? They want to make a winner into a loser. Their intent was to find some skeleton in the closet, even just a small one, blow it up under overall proportion and, and put it in the limelight so Daniel would look bad. So they rummaged through his desk. They checked his files. They consulted with other government people. They looked at his expense reports and no dirt. They couldn't find any dirt on this guy. How do you throw him under the bus when he comes up looking so squeaky clean? His integrity in the workplace was outstanding in every corner of leadership, every corner of management. Trustworthiness. 
Are you trustworthy? Could the supervisor be gone for a month? Would not matter one iota. Could the supervisor be gone a whole year? It wouldn't matter a bit how it impacted your work. Can your organization count on you to be loyal to them? Faithful to them? When we lose our trustworthiness, it takes a long time to earn it back. Uh, it was Elton Trueblood who wrote, I'm sure this has got to be over 50 years ago, quote, it's hard to think of any job in which the moral element is lacking. And then he picks on dentists. The skill of the dentist is wholly irrelevant if he is unprincipled and irresponsible. There is little in that case to keep him from withdrawing teeth unnecessarily because the patient is usually in a helpless situation. It is easy to see the harm that could be done by an unprincipled lawyer. Indeed, such a man or such a woman is far more dangerous if he is skilled than if he is not skilled. And he makes us pose the question, have you been placed in an area of expertise? People look up to you for your expertise and for your competency. I mean, isn't that awesome that people do that? It is. But there's a huge challenge to this. People trust you for your professionalism, for your competency, and that's dangerous if you do not value the trust that has been entrusted to you. They scoured the files of Daniel, but it didn't matter what file they opened. All the files had a beautiful fragrance of integrity. Frustrating. They always came away empty, no deals for personal gain, no expense reports miscalculated, no free trips at their employer's expense. And don't you love the last parts of verse 4 that says, but they couldn't find anything to criticize or condemn. He was faithful, always responsible, and completely trustworthy. Completely trustworthy. And verse 5 cuts through right through all the junk. We're not getting anywhere and trying to pin something on this guy. Our only chance of finding grounds for accusing Daniel will be in connection with the rules of his religion. I mean, you can always concoct something if there's no dirt to be found. As I say this, I just think of Jesus and stuff that they concocted against him in those last days of his ministry, made up all kinds of stuff. But what a great quality, trustworthiness. I never really think a lot about getting on an elevator in an office building, do you? An elevator that goes up 25 floors. I, I'm, I'm never nervous. I never, I never give it a thought. I just walk in, press the buttons, and off we go. The elevator takes you up. And, uh, you know, most of the elevators, you see this little sign called Otis. That's been the industry standard for more than 150 years. Uh, and his name was, I forget the first name, his, his, name, his last name was Otis. He's particularly famous for his, it's the braking system on the elevators. Most elevators were open platforms in the early days. And Otis had troubles selling elevators in those days because people didn't trust them. Everybody thought, that's crazy, go up the equivalent of five floors and then just press a button and, and just come down. 
And what if the elevator just free falls to the ground? So Otis had to pr prove that they were trustworthy and safe. And so he had a plan in New York at a World Fair every hour on the hour, 150 years ago. He would demonstrate how safe it was. He would demonstrate how safe it was by himself stepping onto the platform. And he would give the order to an assistant who would cut the rope. That's the kind of elevators back in those days. And the crowd would hold its breath, and the brake kicked in, and the elevator stopped every time. And Otis would announce, all safe, ladies and gentlemen, all safe. And he did it over and over again and over again, every hour on the hour, for three days. And by that time, people began to believe that they could trust this contraption, that he, in fact, did know what he was doing. And so with the demonstration, Otis quickly sold his first three elevators for $300 apiece, 300 bucks. How many millions of elevators are there today? How many stories is that building? Goes right to the top and back down, and everybody gets in there and never thinks a thing about it. Otis proved they are trustworthy. Daniel did the same thing over and over and over again. Day after day after day, he proved he was trustworthy. They watched him govern. They watched him report to the king. They watched him tell the truth. They watched him file his expense reports. He always got on the trustworthy elevator. And every king that he served under trusted him. They called on him. They look to him for his wisdom and his guidance. Isn't it great, friends, to have people in our lives of whom we can say, I trust them explicitly. They could have access to all my resources. They could know every password. And don't you need a lot of passwords these days? They could have the key to the house. They could have access to my bank account and I would still never have an ounce of concern. Isn't that a blessing to know that there are people like that in the world today? Trustworthiness, one of the great qualities of an excellent life. And then the third distinguishing mark on Daniel's life that spelled an excellent life was the quality of courage. Courage. So Daniel's wonderful colleagues, the administrators and high officers went to the king and tricked him. They said, give orders that the next 30 days everyone has to pray for you or pray to you. Pray to you. Now, isn't that a good deal? And we've been talking about this as the 120 and we all, have, uh, we all have the same idea and we think it's a wonderful idea. We think you could make a law to that effect. And uh, we think that everybody should pray to you. And uh, poor King Darius had his ego stroked a little bit. Sure felt good. It's like a lot of affirmation being in this tough place of ruling a big kingdom. And here, number one, Darius, we've got 120 people affirming that you're number one. Well, he signed the law. But he never gave it a thought of what implications that would have for, for poor Daniel. Do you ever have a bunch of people throw a, a lot of accolades your way? 
but they were only buttering you up so as to achieve some other objectives that they had in mind. And the stroking of the ego felt so good. And then we just fell hook, line, and sinker for it. Later, when the ego massage is over, we say, we were used. We were used. That wasn't the purpose at all. It was to get something else. And as much as the colleagues said, we are all in agreement. You can be sure they didn't CC Daniel the message. He was blind-sided. <coughs> blind-sided. Kind of makes you think of Survivor, doesn't it? Who gets voted off the island? Well, whoever is the biggest threat. Doesn't matter that you're a totally good guy. Actually, it's maybe because you are a good guy that you get voted off the island. It says, when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home, he knelt down as usual in his upstairs room with its windows open towards Jerusalem. He prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks to his God. Love the words, as usual. He knelt down as usual. Uh, he went home, opened the window toward Jerusalem and prayed. Nothing different than any other day. Isn't that great? We have no idea of what was going through Daniel's heart. Was he traumatized by this? Did he look for a way out? No clue from the text. Daniel was in a catch-22 situation. The temptation to compromise was objectively pretty much right in his face. Uh, because he knew history, and he knew that the 70 years of exile was about to end. He knew we were at the end stages. Did he want to die on the last day of the war, so to speak? He could ride this thing out. This is going to end. He could ride this out. From a purely human viewpoint, such a sacrifice seemed utterly pointless. Why lose your life after you've worked so hard to make it through 70 tough years and remember this little worship ticket, you know, the king thing? 30-day limit on it. Just a 30-day limit on it. Surely he could fudge for 30 days. We could make it. Just keep those doors closed. It wasn't like he was denying his faith. It was just that he could stay undercover. Just stay undercover for 30 days. But what a different thought Daniel had. He saw through all of the jealousy of his fellow colleagues and officers. He got it. He, he got it. And instead of thinking, no use dying on the last day, he no doubt said in his heart, everything else has been preparation for this huge challenge. Oh, so that's what it's been all about. All of this that I've gone through before prepared me for the big one. All of his life he had encountered one test after another. By the way, you know this. You never outgrow tests. You never outgrow them. You would think the older you get, the adversary would back off, leave me alone. No, he never does. But every victory over a trial or test puts a confidence notch in your belt. Daniel probably saw all of this as the climax of his faithfulness. The past faithfulness was not meant to be a compensation 
for the present unfaithfulness. It was a preparation for more faithfulness. Tim Irwin, who uh, was a leader of leaders, he said, uh, in working with thousands of leaders over many years, I have observed that they rarely fail because of lack of competency. Clearly, competence is necessary, but it is not sufficient to be a great leader. He said, we must also have a strong core. The word core has become a major idea in the physical development of athletes and others interested in fitness. Core includes all the muscles of the midsection. Uh, the core muscles stabilize the entire body and are prime contributors to strength and coordinated movement. Athletes in just about every sport focus on developing their core muscles because it has proven to make them as much better at the sport in which they play, to develop the core. What an important reminder for all of us that when the core of who we are, uh, in, in the very center of who we are, the very heart of who we are, is, is the core and the call to be strong. It's the place where we make the best decisions, the core, the core of who we are, that have the right attitudes, be trustworthy and courageous. We don't automatically have a strong core. We all know that physically. It's a process. It's day by day by day. And it's an interesting analogy to the way we grow in our character. It's day by day by day, strengthening the core. Day by day, we strengthen that core through our choices and through our journey with God. It's not self-help. I'm not talking self-help this morning. Try to have a stronger core. Figure out some ways to have it. God helps us develop that core. Sometimes it's painful. The exercise hurts. The discipline hurts. But the results are profound. The strength of the core means a bold witness of God's love and power in the world. It means a life of purpose and significance. It means confidence in living. So many things that come out of the core. An excellent life. Daniel is a great model. It was true when he was 17. And it was true when he was 40. And it was true when he was 80. An excellent life. Great attitude. Trustworthy, courageous, part of the core of who Daniel was. Let's stand together as we pray. Father, this morning we pause as your children to thank you for examples such as Daniel. We're thankful that every day, uh, without fail, you journey with us, even as you did so with Daniel. It's a wonderful model for us. And Father, give us eyes to see ourselves, see our own attitudes and to evaluate our own trustworthiness and our courage or lack of it. Lord, in a, in a broken, broken, hurting world today, we need you so much. We need the Daniels. 
in Manchester. We need the Daniels in Egypt. We need the Daniels in Edmonton. We need them all over. Help us, Lord, as we develop and grow. Give us hearts to grow in obedience, becoming more and more of who you want us to be. Thank you for bringing us together today. God, by your Holy Spirit, say the things to our hearts today that, that you want to say. You know us all individually. May we just say, yes, Lord, I receive today. I receive what you're saying to me. We hear your still small voice. In Jesus' name, amen.